I learned that God has compassion on outsiders. You get the impression that they're going to go in and rout all the Canaanites. And yet the first Canaanite we meet is Rahab, who isn't routed. In fact, she ends up helping God's people, and she ends up getting her name listed in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews 11. And in James, who's talking about what it means to be righteous. Did I mention her occupation? God has compassion on outsiders. At the same time, God's willing to judge insiders. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Joshua is a book that finally lets us breathe out. You know, we've been reading Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and we've been holding our breath, hoping that God's people would figure something out. They they could stop wandering, and they could finally go and get some rest. And in Joshua, they get a chance to go and get some rest. God promised Abraham, back in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8, your descendants are going to take the land of Canaan. And so when God brought his people out of Egypt and he had them cross the Red Sea, he said, we're going to have to go through the desert, but we're headed towards that promised land. And it didn't take his people long to make him question whether I should have begun this trip in the first place. Moses is on the mountain getting the laws, including the first one. You shall have no other gods before me while his people are building a golden calf. His own leader, Moses, is so frustrated that when God tells him to speak to the rock, he strikes the rock. And as you know, God says, I'm going to have you bear the same penalty that the people this generation are bearing. And that is, they won't go in and you won't go in. And so Deuteronomy ends with Moses giving a speech as he peers out and looks at the land he won't see and says, when you go into that land, remember your God. Joshua begins, and I love the way the book of Joshua begins. Neil, uh, uh, Neil Pryor uh, preached a sermon at the college church in 2005, the sermon called Your Next Preacher. And he was trying to get them ready when they were making a preaching transition. And he said, one of the first things to remember is that Moses was everybody's favorite. I mean, Moses was there for all those years. Everybody loved Moses. And so the first thing God says in the book of Joshua is Moses is dead. You know, (laughs) in other words, it's time to turn and to face something new. You know, I remember that line. He said, that's not a bad thing, bad way to begin. Uh, You know, uh, Moses is dead. Joshua, I'm giving you a new charge because we need a new leader. And so God gives Joshua the command and the privilege to lead God's people into the promised land. You all know, because I mentioned this last week, but you may have already known it ahead of time. Joshua is a Hebrew name. And the Greek name that compares with Joshua is what? Jesus. And so we have what Aramaic name. uh, So what we have here is uh, an early foretaste of what's going on here. Moses represents the law. And the law won't get you into God's rest. You need Yeshua. 
You need Jesus to get you into God's rest. Joshua is the chosen leader. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this before. In the first chapter of Joshua, God says, take courage. Don't be afraid. And I am. And in the gospel of Mark, Jesus is walking on the water and his scared people are in the boat. And Jesus says, take courage. Don't be afraid. I am. The words of God to Joshua are now being spoken by the new Joshua, who is revealing the fact that he is, in fact, God. So the new Joshua is the one who leads us into God's rest. Joshua is leading God's people into God's rest. And of course, the first thing we have to do is cross over. There are these major moments in history where God expects you to do some sort of ceremony because the ceremony is deeply important. The ceremony is the kind of thing you can look back on to remember that something truly special has happened. Uh, The wedding ceremony is one of these things when you're irritated with each other and you're just at each other's throats and you're not acting like you should. The marriage counselor will say, do you remember the I do's? Let's watch the video. Do you remember the feelings you had that day? Let's go over that moment. Remember it in your mind. All the hopes that you had in that moment, that ceremony reminds you that something special has happened. One of the greatest things you get to do sometimes as a preacher and the most powerful moment in the world is you realize that before you say, and now I pronounce you, they're not married. But when you say, now I pronounce you, they're married. Talk about power. Right there. Right there. There's a crossing over moment. They're not in the promised land, and then they are. They crossed the Jordan River. The river's not calm. But when they step in it, it's calm. You know, these are the same people. Well, not the same people. Their parents were the ones who crossed the Red Sea and forgot. Now they're crossing the Jordan River. And as soon as they cross over, do you remember what Joshua has them do? Build a mound of stones to make sure you don't forget the crossing over moment. I don't know if this is an appropriate moment, but I was just thinking one uh, practice that I've heard other preachers give to people, and it's something I've uh, learned to love, is when you give your life to Christ and you cross over in baptism, it's good to write yourself a letter to remind yourself of what you're doing and why you're doing it sort of a mound of stones you can look back to to remember your crossing over moment. So they do that. And in the first couple chapters of Joshua, chapters one through four, they cross over the Jordan River, they enter into the land, and this crossing over retells the story. And there's another example where God says, you know, you've been telling the story about crossing the Red Sea, but every time you've told it to your kids, it always ended with a groan. Yeah, that was a long time ago, and this is all we've got to show for it. So we're going to retell the story. A new crossing, new water, new river, new land, and you get to tell this story. When we cross the water, it ended in peace. And in Joshua chapters 5 through 12, we learn that entering into the new land doesn't come without obligation, without difficulty, without sacrifice. And so chapters 5 through 12, there are still battles to be fought. But if they rely on God, those battles can end in victory, and they do. 
in chapters 13 through 21 of Joshua. They divide up the land. And then finally, in the last two, three chapters of the book, they are able to settle in the land. There's still going to be work to do. I mean, for example, they will not capture Jerusalem until the time of King David. Something to keep in mind. There's some parts of the land they don't get yet. But the boundaries are all mapped out. And as the book ends, Joshua reminds the people to make a firm commitment to remember this day and to make sure the story of victory, the story of God leading and and conquering will be their family story and the story of the nation. And that's where he gives the famous speech. Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether it be the gods of your forefathers or whatever. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so we learn some beautiful uh, truths about uh, God uh, in the book of Joshua. Then we come to the book of Judges. The children of Israel have come to rest in the promised land. But have they come to rest in God's promises? Well, you know the story. Uh, Over the next two centuries, they forget. And as a result of forgetting the story of their God and their place in the story, they fall for all the wrong things. You know, what was it? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. They fall for all the wrong things, all the false gods, all the false ways. But God, in keeping with his own promises and warnings, allows his people to suffer the consequences of their actions, but always within his providential space. He's in charge of how much they suffer and when. He's in charge of how far they go. He's in charge of what lines of communication are still available. So when they finally realize they've done wrong and they cry out for deliverance, God is there, ready and willing because of his grace and mercy to bring them back because he still has a plan and he's going to keep his side of the bargain. So he raises up judges. That's where we get the name for the book. Now, don't really think of somebody in the black robe sitting in a courtroom somewhere. Uh, This is much more tribal. And so a judge was a leader often with military power. They also would make decisions. They also would offer spiritual guidance. But they they were pretty raw in a lot of places. And they were supposed to lead God's people out of dry seasons. These were just leaders that God picks up to use while his people remain fickle, sometimes serving God, sometimes forgetting God. And so the the book of Judges uses this phrase in a couple of places that summarizes the times in which they lived. And you might think it sounds a lot like times closer to home. In Judges 17 and verse 6, he says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was the phrase for what it felt like to be alive at that time. Everyone did what was right. In their own eyes. Now, you know, when I hear a language like that, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I kind of have gotten used from reading Genesis. I've gotten used to the next chapter being a gigantic flood that sweeps them all away. But notice how God doesn't do that anymore. God, when he says these people are completely lost, what we're going to find next, because he's in covenant, what we're going to find is, how can I? be where I need to be so I can bring these people to the next step in this plan when they get to where they need to be. 
It's, so <clears throat> he raises up judges, and these judges are far from perfect. In fact, their glaring imperfections help underscore the fact that it's God who's actually doing the delivering. Not just that, it reminds us that God is incredibly merciful. And it reminds us that God can work through flawed people, praise God. And it reminds us that ultimately, we're going to need a final judge. We're going to need a final leader who's going to lead us to God's ultimate rest because human judges, human leaders just can't do it fully. The constant rebellion on the part of God's people is a warning that we too may suffer consequences for failing to obey. But obedience is for our own good. It's kind of like uh, when the doctor says, this medicine will make you better. And you say, I'll show you, doctor. I won't take my medicine. You're only hurting yourself. And that's what happens when we disobey the Lord. And yet, God promises to never leave us or forsake us. It's his very nature. So those are the stories of Joshua and Judges. In some ways, a tale of two cities. In other ways, both sides of the human dilemma that we experience all the time. So what do we learn about God and his spirit in these two books? One of the things is we learn that God is faithful even when we are not. He refuses to give up on his people. He's waiting patiently. He's always ready to save his people when they call upon him, always guiding how much and how far his people suffer consequences for their actions. In the New Testament, we're told this in this kind of language, and that is whatever temptation comes your way, uh, God uh, knows what's going on. And nothing will come your way that isn't common to man, but will with every temptation, God will provide a way of escape. I learned that God supplies what we need. Paul in the book of Philippians, God will supply your every need, whether it's leaders or it's victories or it's encouragement. You'll find it all in Joshua and Judges. God keeps providing. It's not manna but it's certainly bread from heaven when it's needed. This is a quote from a book by Christopher Wright. He says, I want you to note that the book of Joshua is clearly not a typical portrayal of some epic conquest in which one side is glorified and the other is demonized. The hero is not Israel. It's not Joshua. It's God. I also learned that God is relevant We need to be reminded of this. The people in Joshua's day see victory. The people in the time of Judges, they go chasing after Baal. And if you think, why in the world would they go chasing after Baal when God's given them all this stuff? Well, you know, it's not just easy to forget. It's easy to start comparing. Do you know Baal in the culture in which they were living? Baal was the god of rain the God of fertility, the God of business, all the important things in life, right? The things you're trying to achieve for yourself. That was the God of that culture. And who was this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, the story begins to be told. He's a God who made a promise to your great-great-grandfathers a long time ago about, you know, getting you across some water somewhere. And they forgot. No, 
He was the God in whom we live and breathe and have our being. He's the God who provides food for the day. He's the God who provides the air that we breathe. God is relevant. I also learned that God is at work. You know, I'd mentioned that the spirit of God goes by different names in the Old Testament, but he comes up several times in these passages. In Judges chapter 3 and verse 10, the spirit comes upon Othniel, one of the judges, giving him power to defeat the king of Aram. You'll see the king of Aram come up later in one of my favorite stories, a little bit later in a different book. King of Aram is the one who sends the group out when uh, Elisha is in the camp with the little servant boy and the servant boy wakes up at servant boy. He may have been 40. I don't know. The servant wakes up and he looks out and he sees the enemy all around. This is the king of Aram and all of his people. And they've surrounded the camp and he's scared to death. He says to Elisha, what shall we do? Basically, uh, how are we going to die? And Elisha just prays and says, God, open his eyes so he may see. And the boy looks up. And behind all the enemy, all that the king of Aram had sent were fiery chariots. So the king of Aram is mentioned in Judges 3 and verse 10. But the spirit of God gives power to defeat the king of Aram. In Judges 6 and verse 34, a literal translation says the spirit of God clothed Gideon. So when you see Gideon doing stuff for the Lord, it's because the spirit is giving him power to do it. Even Jephthah in Judges 11, the spirit comes upon Jephthah to advance against the Ammonites, Judges eleven twenty nine, and of course, Samson. Three or four times we're told the spirit of God gives him the power he needs to either uh, fight uh, or to kill or to win, depending on what's needed. I also find an interesting last thing about God and the spirit is in Joshua 5, that's that interesting passage where you have somebody show up and Joshua is wondering who this is. And he says, he's the, you know, he's the captain of the army of the Lord. And it's such an interesting story. The key question is not whose side is God on? We ask that sometimes in some big uh, split, whose side is God on? And of course, in that story, when Joshua wants to know, is God on my side? Is God on their side? And he says, well, Look, I'm not on your side, I'm not on that side, I'm on God's side. The question is not whose side is God on. The question is, are you on the Lord's side? Some things we learn about God. Second question, what do we learn about Christ in Joshua and Judges? Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus who leads us into God's true rest. Our leader is both our Joshua and our judge. And he secures the ultimate victory for us. And he helps us when we fail. He judges sin, but he judges it in his own flesh. And then he grants us the blessings of covenant faithfulness because of his own covenant faithfulness. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul builds up, builds off this story. First uh, Corinthians 15 verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we learn about faith, forgiveness, and hope in these books? 
One thing we learn is that our redemption is secured for us because the battle is won. First Peter chapter one, beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our redemption has been secured. The battle is won. And this means whatever foes we face, God's love, God's presence, and God's protection are never far from us. Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? I am persuaded neither height nor depth nor principalities or powers, things present, things to come can separate us from the love that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I learned that God has compassion on outsiders. You get the impression. This is something interesting about uh, Joshua and Judges. Sometimes God speaks in broad brush terms. You get the impression that they're going to go in and rout all the Canaanites. And yet the first Canaanite we meet is Rahab. Who isn't routed. In fact, she ends up helping God's people and she ends up getting her name listed in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. And in James, who's talking about what it means to be righteous. And did I mention her occupation? She was uh, an innkeeper. That's what one of the passages say. She was also a prostitute. God has compassion on outsiders. At the same time, God's willing to judge insiders. In these books, we have God using Rahab and letting her end up being an example to the world. And we have God judging Achan in Judges chapter seven, Joshua chapter 7, who hides and he steals and he hurts the camp and therefore he is effectively treated like a Canaanite. He is put to death. I think there's an echo here of Romans 2 where Paul's going to say, you know that a Jew is not a Jew who's one outwardly, got all the right signs, all the circumcision, but one who's one inwardly, that is his heart belongs to God and his heart is tied to the law in the same way. A Christian, a Christian is not just somebody who does all the right outward actions, but where is their heart? And I see an echo here. We also find that, uh, last question, that we find some things to learn about what it means to be the people of God. I don't know if they're waiting on me. I saw them out by the door. Oh, well, I guess they'll wave me down if I need to stop. Uh, What do we learn about being the people of God? God uses imperfect leaders. This is where I expected all the elders to say amen. God uses, God uses imperfect leaders. Jephthah in Judges 11, Samson in Judges 15. They have some serious character flaws. 
But God works with what he has to work with. He works to find the best in us, and he uses that to his glory. And I want you to notice, he raises up the leaders. These leaders are not self-appointed, nor are they democratically elected. God raised them up, and they are imperfect. I should tell you something about God's great vision about working with and through flawed humanity. And some of them even become examples of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, it's easy for God's people to forget. Judges 3 and verse 7 says that God's people forgot. And the consequences for forgetting can be devastating. So the book of Hebrews warns us. This, it's written to another generation that have kind of lost the fervent fire. And he talks about strengthening the hands and the feeble knees. It is easy to forget. The consequences of forgetfulness can be devastating. Romans 6 says, don't you know if you yield your body to sin, you become servants of sin? So yield your bodies to righteousness so you can be servants of righteousness. The people in the time of the judges showed terrible disunity, mainly because they had no capital city, no earthly king, no national army, and they were in constantly embattled territory. And yet through it all, there was this idea in their minds that we see through both books. And that is they kept saying to themselves, but we're Israel and God is our king. And this common identity is seen in the stories of Deborah, in the story of Gideon. We see this importance point that we need to tell our story to our children and our children's children, because it's the story of who we are in Christ that may in fact be the catalyst for repentance and return and to remember who we are and whose we are. Some questions. What battles are we fighting today? Where do we look for strength? What do we consider to be victory? Are we truly overcomers in this world? Or have we let the world overcome us? In what ways do we stand in need of divine rescue? And what things are getting in the way of keeping us from remembering that we in fact belong to one king? who owns our lives. Let Joshua and Judges bring you to Jesus so that the gospel may always be on our lips. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguy.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.